Good morning, church. Great to see you guys this morning. My name is Matt. It's so good to be with you this morning. I have uh, long wanted to come and worship with you here at South Spring. Uh, I'm a pastor, and alas, I work on Sundays in a different church, and so I cannot. Unless... I'm here for family camp and speaking for a week, and uh, I get to come and speak on the day after I was here. So, Chris, thank you for the invitation. My family and I have loved being here. You guys have been so hospitable to us and welcoming us here to your fellowship. We're glad to be here. I would say um, uh, we have known the Leg family for quite some time. Um, my wife and I, I worked for Chris at Pine Cove for a, for a brief moment. I survived. I only had to go through therapy for about a couple of years. <laughs> And then my wife, however, has, been, has known Chris much longer than I have as she was in his youth group. So if you can imagine Chris as a youth pastor, maybe you shouldn't imagine Chris as a youth pastor. Anyway, um, we have, uh, del we're delighted to be here and really excited to worship with you guys today. So thank you so much for welcoming us. As Paul mentioned earlier, my family and I have been speaking at Pine Cove this week. We've uh, just spoken at the family camp called The Bluffs, had a great week there. But being back in Tyler and being back at Pine Cove kind of reminded me of some of my first days when I, I was on staff back in the early 2000s. And I'll never forget, I was at the Shores camp. I was watching these college students that I was going to start working with. They were all gathered in the middle of the room, excited about the next week of camp. And they were circled up, jumping up and down, chanting and cheering. I'm like, what is this place? This is kind of crazy. And then this horrifying moment happened to me. You guys have ever had a moment like this? But as I was watching these college students jump up and down in a mob in the middle of the room, I looked at their feet and I noticed that they were all wearing no-show socks. And I was wearing tube socks. <laughs> it's like, started to scrunch them down. You know, like, I didn't get the memo at any time that tube socks weren't cool anymore, and now we should have like no-show socks. It's like, I just missed it. It was the first moment I felt old my whole life. <laughs> I'm like, I'm that guy. I'm now not wearing something that's not fashionable. This is not okay. I felt really, really insecure in that moment. And it was uncomfortable because nobody likes to feel like the outsider, right? When you guys go on vacation, you know, you guys remember vacations? You guys remember what it was like? You guys remember like leaving the country and going to different cultures and places? Like when you go and visit those cultures, do you want to look like a tourist? No, I want to look like a local. I want to blend in. I want to know all the cool spots that none of the tourists know about, but I want you to take me to where the locals go. I want some local food because I, I want to fit in. It makes us insecure when we're not up to date, when we're not trendy, when we're not hip. We don't like being aliens. We don't like being strangers in any context. It's not something that we enjoy, not something that makes us feel comfortable. We'd rather feel like we're on the inside. We'd rather feel like we're in the know, that we're trendy. We'd rather be like the locals. But as you guys have been talking about in the book, book of 1 Peter, you're not. You're not local. You are a holy people, a chosen nation, a people belonging to God. You've been called out of this world, and we are supposed to live in it as aliens and strangers. 
And this has got to be true for us in so much more than our sock choices, right? And our fashion choices. Because what did the locals do this past year before, during, and after the election? What did the locals do? Those people who aren't called out by God, those people who don't know Jesus the way that we do. What did the locals do when a black man was murdered by a police officer? What did the locals do when a pandemic hit? When the vaccine came out? Are we taking our cues on how to live as aliens and strangers in this world from the locals? Or are we taking our cues from the person of Jesus? That's the question I'd like to hold up to you today. And I'd like to challenge you a little bit with. Because when you live around locals, the pressure to be like them is pretty intense. It's easy for you to start to become like them. But if we're truly aliens and strangers in this world, because of the grace that God has given us by choosing us, setting us apart to be his people, then we shouldn't be looking to the locals for how to live our lives. Peter knows that tension. He knows that tension personally. He knows it in his own life. He knows it will be a tension for those who, is, who are reading his letter, and he knows it will be a tension for us. So he writes this letter... So the recipients will understand and do two things. Number one, that they will understand the true grace of God. And that in understanding it, they will stand firmly in it. That's the thesis for the book of 1 Peter. It's not until he gets to the end of the book. In chapter 5, where he says, I have written to you briefly testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. That's his objective in writing this letter. So what he does is he spends the first chapter and a half, all the way up through the middle of chapter two, where you guys got to last week, telling them and describing to them this true grace of God, that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All of these facets and identity statements about who we are, that wasn't me, that must have been from the Lord. He just sent me an email. Matt, get moving. Keep going. Okay. All right. He spends the first chapter and a half describing the true grace of God, how it transforms and changes our identity. And then when we get to the second half of the chapter, in the middle of chapter two, he shifts. And he tells us all of these instructions, these commands, these imperatives on how we should stand firm in God's grace, what it looks like to remain steady in God's grace, no matter what our circumstances might be or what the locals around us are doing. He gives them this long list of commands all the way from here to the end of the book about relationships, suffering, persecution, and all of the commands, all of the instructions revolve around the person and work of Jesus. It's like Jesus is the center of the wheel and all of his instructions radiate out like spokes on that wheel as he wants his people to to know and to model their lives after him. 
And that's our big idea this morning. That's the thing, if you hear me say nothing else this morning, it's this, that Jesus is our paradigm for how to live and how to be a stranger in a strange land. We need to not forget, we need to remember that we are indeed aliens. And if we are aliens, we should take our, our cues from Jesus rather than the world around us. Now, last week, you started into this list of commands that Peter has with Peter's exhortation to first avoid the passions of the flesh and then to submit to the governing authorities. And of course, Jesus is a perfect example of doing both of those, and he'll talk about that here in a moment. And we're going to see that the theme of submission that Peter started with the government is going to continue this week as he now addresses household slaves that existed in the first century in Rome. But as we've been going through this list, he hasn't really given us a compelling why yet. Why should I submit to my government? Why should I submit to my master, especially if they're corrupt, especially if they're unjust, especially if they're abusive? Why should I do that? So we'll get to the answers to those questions as we look at our paradigm and how Peter holds him up to us. We're going to start here in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 18 through 21st, and then we'll finish 21 through 25 here in the second part of the message. So let's look here at 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. He begins, Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Both a previous section on government and now this section on household slaves is they begin with the same command to submit or to be subject. And the word here is very important. It's the word hupotasso. And it's a military term that means to arrange underneath. It's not um, the WWE submission that you think of when somebody's got somebody in a, in a, hole, a neck hold and trying to force them into submission. It's not Nolan Ryan on the mound, you know, about to wail on somebody because he charged the mound. It's a submission that is willing. Just like uh, an army officer would willingly arrange himself the way his commanding officer asked him to because he trusts his officer and wants to submit himself to do that. In both cases, with the government and then to those who served as household slaves, people, Peter wanted the believers to willingly remain under the authority of their government and their masters, their lords, even if they were unjust, even if they were corrupt. And maybe like you, I'm sure Peter, like I, could hear the recipients of this letter saying, well, wait a second. We're Christians. Jesus is our Lord now. 
He's our master. He's our king. He's our emperor. We don't have to obey those corrupt, fallen, sinful, pagan, Gentile lords or kings or emperors. We follow Jesus. And then I think Peter would say, okay, I understand how you feel that way, but just because you've become a Christian doesn't mean you no longer obey your government or your masters. Christians should still submit to their highest authority no matter what. That's why he writes verse 16 of chapter 2. He says, live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Just because you're free doesn't mean you can go and do whatever you want, especially if it's illegal. You should still submit to the governing authorities unless they're asking you to disobey your highest authority. And you guys talked about that last week. Secondly, he, want, he would probably respond and say, it's a good apologetic for us to act this way because it's always better to do good and suffer for it than it is to do something illegal and get punished for it. Because if you do something illegal and get punished for it, you're just getting what you deserve. But if you do good and you get punished for it, that's a compelling apologetic for the sake of the gospel. And thirdly, Peter would tell them, hey, it doesn't really matter what the locals are doing, what the people of Rome are doing, and whether they're corrupt and unjust or whether they're good and generous. It doesn't really matter. I don't need you guys to protest and rally around each other if your master is treating you poorly. It's not something that I need. I don't need you to file a lawsuit if the government's doing something it shouldn't do. I don't need you to change your Facebook profile picture to support a cause. I'm far more interested, Peter would say, in us being faithful to Jesus than I am in seeing the culture around us be changed. Let's focus on our faithfulness to Christ before we focus on trying to change others, is what he would say. Okay, Peter, um, okay, but why would Jesus want us to be mistreated? Doesn't he want us to be happy? Doesn't he want what's best for my life? You're asking me to endure suffering. You're telling me I should endure mistreatment, shame, pain. I'm going to need a little bit more motivation as to why I should do that. And it's almost like Peter knows what his readers are thinking. Because starting in verse 21, through the remainder of chapter 2, Peter stops his list. He doesn't continue. He's in the middle of talking about government. He's in the middle of talking about household slaves. After this, he's going to talk to wives. Then he's going to talk to husbands. Then he's going to talk to the church as a whole. He's in, this, he's in the middle of this long list, and he stops because he knows they need the most compelling why that he could offer them. And so what he does here, starting in verse 21, is he holds up to them the person of Jesus. And he says, here's your why. This is why. It's because of his example. Look in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter holds up the person of Jesus to the congregations in Asia Minor as the quintessential slave, as the quintessential servant, the one who submitted himself to unjust suffering, the one who died at the hands of his local government so that he could serve those who he came to save. And this is not a new idea. This was something that was prophesied from old. And if anybody was Jewish in Peter's audience that he was writing to, they would have recognized the language that he used in those verses. They would have recognized them as having come from Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant. We read some of it during our worship time this morning. Listen to how similar it sounds. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one My servant make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Peter holds up Jesus to his readers as the example of what they have all been called to be and to do. And the way he does that is he uses the word example. And the Greek word for example is called hypogrammon, which essentially means It was a school technique, the way that kids would learn how to write their letters. They would take a pen and trace over a a form of a letter that had already been written for them, and they would learn how to write the letter by tracing the pattern that already existed. 
And Peter holds up Jesus to them and says, this is the pattern for your life. This is how you live as a stranger in a strange land. Your life should trace his. And his life went through pain and suffering and persecution and death and resurrection. He is your example. Take your cues from him. And he gets very specific about those cues and those qualities in Jesus' life that he wants his readers to trace. And so I've narrowed them down to four for you. And I want you to think about how you could apply these four qualities of Jesus in the way that you trace your life, the way that you live your life for him. There are four qualities that we need to trace. The first one comes from verse 22 where it says, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When the heat of the moment started to turn up for Jesus, when he uh, got arrested in the garden, then he got put on trial, all of for things he didn't do, false accusations, all of them, Jesus never squirmed. He doesn't hesitate. He didn't grasp for control. He didn't get cold feet. He didn't manipulate the situation. He never got so desperate that he took matters into his own hands. Even though in the garden, he had just been praying to the Father, if possible, please take this cup from me. Friends, anytime we think that we know better than God, anytime we abandon his way for a way that we think is better, that's what sin is. Sin is when we think our way is better than his own. And the text says that Jesus committed no sin. It's what he said after, take this cup from me. He said, not my will, but yours be done. When we get squeezed, when we get pinched, a lot of times we try to take matters into our own hands. We try to control the situation because we're afraid. And instead of trusting God, we start to sin because we have done something now our way instead of God's way. And Peter knows this. This is why he's writing his letter because he remembers what it was like in Caiaphas's garden. When he sat there by the fire and that girl walked up to him and said, you're one of them, aren't you? You're one of those guys that was walking around with Jesus, aren't you? You're him, I recognize you. And what did he say? I don't know him. I don't know Jesus. Deceit was in his mouth, Peter's mouth. He lied. Because he was afraid, he took matters into his own hands. He lied and denied Jesus three times. And that's the first thing I want us to understand of the character of Jesus that we need to trace with our own lives is don't take matters into your own hands, especially when the locals are doing something different than what you're doing especially when the locals are pressuring you to do something different than what Jesus is asking you to do. Don't take matters into your own hands. Look for the will of God. Follow it wherever it leads, even if it leads us to death. 
That's the first thing. The second thing we need to see or trace in our lives is in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When Jesus was crucified and hanging there on the cross, he was, they hurled their insults at him. They spat on him. These are people that he created are treating him with this disrespect. People that he came to save. And he never felt the compulsive urge to hurt them back. Because that's what we do. When someone harms us, we want to harm them. That's our natural way of thinking. That's the way the locals do. They want to get revenge. They want to return evil for evil. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not what Jesus models for us. Those are all tools of a world that is obsessed with power and control and will wield whatever weapon is necessary to keep that power and to keep that control. And that's not the, the kingdom that Jesus is Lord over. In Jesus's kingdom, he says, blessed are you when others revile you, when they persecute you, when they say all manner of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad when that happens. Don't protest. Don't go on about your rights being violated. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven if these things happen to you. That's the second thing we need to trace in the character of the life of Jesus. Don't mistreat when you're mistreated. Just because someone has harmed you doesn't give you license to harm them back. Just because someone was rude to you, just because someone disrespected you, just because someone didn't meet your expectations, whether that's your boss, your government, or your pastor, well, that never happens with your pastor, you don't get to mistreat them back. That's not the way of Jesus. It's not the pattern of his life that we're supposed to trace. The third thing we need to see is in verse 23. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In every aspect of his life, as a servant, as a slave, especially when Jesus was mistreated, this line, this verse was his posture, his attitude, his motivation, entrusting himself to God the Father. And the word entrust here is the word um, that means to surrender. It's a word that is often translated in the New Testament as betray, to give yourself over, to give someone else over. In fact, it's the word that Jesus uses in the upper room when he says, one of you will betray me. He has a posture as he lives his life of complete and total surrender to God. His way is always better than mine. It's a stronger word even than the word submission because it's the complete handing over of your life into someone else's, even if your life is on the line. So that's our third pattern that we need to trace in our lives is that we need to live a surrendered life. We need to live a surrendered life. If we're not living a surrendered life, we're going to go out and on Tuesday afternoon, you're going to be hanging out with some of the locals. Or on Friday night. And you're going to start thinking about some of the things that you do 
and should do and shouldn't do, and you're going to take your cues from them instead of from Jesus. Our ability to trace the life of Jesus, to look like him, sanctification, holiness, godliness, doesn't come as much from what we know as much as it comes from how surrendered we are to him. We must live surrendered lives. And when we do, we can endure mistreatment. When our life is surrendered to God, we can endure injustice because we trust that God our Father will handle that judgment better than we ever could. We don't sin in the process. We keep walking in righteousness instead because injustice will never leave. It'll always be here one way or another. There will always be corruption. There will always be mistreatment. And hopefully, there will always be believers who are faithful in the midst of it. The last thing we need to see in Jesus' character that we need to trace is in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Only when we are submitted to God can we go all the way where he's called us to go. Jesus was willing to die so that we could live. And we can only do that if we're submitted to God. And we can only persevere in doing that through mistreatment, injustice, even the threat of death, if we're faithful to our calling. And that's the fourth pattern we need to trace, is that we need to be faithful to what God has called us to do and to be as his chosen people, his holy nation, as those who belong to him. Those four qualities are the paradigm for what alien life should look like on this planet for us as his, as his holy people. When we turn our lives over to Jesus so that we trace his pattern in our own lives, it transforms us into his likeness. It's how we become like him in our everyday lives, not just when we're gathered here on Sundays. It transforms our will so that we're no longer thinking about what is right or best in our own opinion, but instead we're seeking God's will, his way, and we're living it out. And it also transforms our identity. We're no longer trying to make our own way in a survival of the fittest, Lord of the Flies kind of world. We may initially have felt like we needed to play their games because the world around us can be pretty intimidating. But when we look on the person and example of Jesus, we know that we're not alone. We have a good shepherd who's given us a sense of purpose, direction, and he's going to be with us even in the valley of the shadow of death. Peter wants his readers not to make the same mistake that he did. As we close here, I have to believe that this scene from Matthew chapter 16 is in the back of his mind the whole time he's writing this section. You guys remember the moment where Jesus is with the disciples at Caesarea Philippi and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter's the first one. He goes, ooh, ooh, pick me, pick me. I know you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter's like, Correct. 10 points for Gryffindor. And he says, and Peter's like, yes, this is great. And he says, you didn't figure that out on your own, Peter. God, our father revealed that to you. 
And then after that, starting in verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God. You're acting like a local. My translation. You're doing things the way that men do them. People who are not submitted to God do them. People who don't know Jesus as Messiah do them. And then verse 24, he says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I wonder what Peter felt like when Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan. And he realized that he had been taking his cues from the wrong person. And he saw in Jesus his pattern to trace and realized that his Savior was going to walk the road of Isaiah 53, suffer and die for his sins. And I imagine that's why Peter, when he died, as church history tells us, was himself crucified upside down as he chose to walk the way of his Savior. Jesus is our paradigm for how to be a stranger in a strange, strange land. Let's take our cues from him. Let's be faithful to him no matter what the locals are doing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed and grateful for the example of Jesus in our lives, first as our Savior and Lord, and second as now an example, a pattern for us and our lives to trace. Father, would you help us to notice and to observe and to take in the aspects of his character that helped him to be faithful to you, no matter what his circumstances and no matter what the locals were doing, so that we can be faithful to what you've called us to do, so that we can bring you glory and honor. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.